0: The following panel was presented at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Manas Friedman, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, and Rabbi Simon Jacobson present a panel on The Rebbe's Gift to the World, Moderated by Rabbi Shmuel Feld. The,
1: the uh, three Rabbanim who are with me on the stage were a Zohar to be connected to the Rebbe in a way that uh, the current generation is not. And what, one of the things that I would like to get an opportunity to have these three individuals do is their usual job of being able to spread the Rebbe's Torah in a certain way that in this particular, that in this particular incident that uh, I would like to get them to spread in a very different way by asking them some very specific questions about how things are. So if I could start by asking each of the people here to uh, introduce who they are and to explain their connection with either translating and or writing down the sikhos of the Rebbe. So Rory Freeman, if you could start.
2: <laughs> Hi. I'm Manus Friedman. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> how long? Uh, how long?
3: <laughs> Welcome to the program. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: Somehow, I had the, the privilege of translating the Debus talks for about eight years when it was broadcast through satellite connection, hookups, whatever it's called. The Debe spoke in Yiddish and I translated into English and it was heard, I mean, wherever anybody had the, uh, the connection. So, other than learning and studying what the Debe writes, I was able to actually serve some useful function as well. I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> Thanks for
1: clarifying. <laughs> That's another story. Yeah. Hi,
3: I'm uh, Simon Jacobson. Uh, From approximately uh, 1977, I became involved in the select group of people who were called chayzrim, which in Hebrew means those that remembered. And our job was to be uh, oral scribes, which means to remember verbatim hours and hours of the Rebbe's talks that were delivered on Shabbos and holidays when there were no recordings and no notes were taken and the second half of the job was being a writer to after shabbos and the holidays to actually commit it to paper research it annotate it and ultimately publish it and i did that i became the official writer in the original yiddish of the rebbe in 1979 until 1992 when the rebbe sadly suffered a stroke and um after that i continued my work of taking those ideas and distilling it for the larger public. So the job was basically quite uh, challenging to remember those hours and then get it down on paper and uh, in a way that we have it today for posterity. I published around, I would say, 1,000 to 1,200 talks of the Rebbe, Fabregans of the Rebbe.
0: Hello, my name is... uh, YY y, y Jacobson or YY y Jacobson, Jacobson. Y um, thank you all for being here. Uh, from approximately the year 1988, I joined uh, with my brother on the team of uh, Chosrim. Those were the, as you just explained, those who were responsible to memorize and then uh, transcribe the Lubavitch Rebbe's talks for publication, which I had the privilege of being involved in until the Rebbe fell ill, as my brother just said, in 92. In addition to that, or I guess part of that was every uh, Saturday night, Mitzvah Shabbat, right after Shabbos would end, there was an interesting office in 770 Eastern Parkway, which is still there, that would broadcast live to communities all over the world uh, the review of the gathering of the Rebbe that Shabbos. So I had the privilege of uh, going in there every Shabbos, right after Shabbos, and uh, broadcasting, from my memory, everything that the Rebbe spoke uh, during that Shabbos, Fabrangan, which also continued till the last Fabrangan, which was in the winter of 92, spring of 92.
1: Considering your intimate connection with uh, the Rebbe's Torah, what was the most challenging thing in being able to either simultaneously translate or be able to, cl- in clarity, put down what it was that the Rebbe was, was saying? What was the most significant challenge? Rabbi, why would Jacob Sivka so start from you and go this way this time?
0: Uh, I'll just note an interesting thing, and that is the, the, the Rebbe's um, style of communication changed very dramatically the last few years of his life. The Rebbe chose to communicate very differently. Uh, All the years it was very challenging, I think for three major reasons. Number one, the Rebbe did not give uh, before the speech notes of what he's going to talk about. And he would call from literally every uh, discipline within Judaism from the most esoteric to the most practical. So you had to profess some type of knowledge in literally every stream of Judaism. The Rebbe would quote, uh, some far out uh, quotation of Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Kabbalist, as a toast was somewhere in the Talmud. So that was one major element. It was a infinite uh, broadness and expansiveness of genius of a mind. That was number one. Number two, the Rebbe could sometimes cover an enormous amount of subjects within 10 minutes. He could have sent you know to t- set 10 revolutionary with 20 revolutionary ideas and you had to pick it up you had to really uh, like tune into it and g- get it and grasp it and uh, that was the depth of it and number three was the sheer quantity there was so much there simply to remember it and even though there were good minds remembering it I mean I still remember everybody remembers the struggle, and then I mean, I remember there was sometimes I knew that what the Rebbe said was forgotten. We, we did, I knew that there was something there, but we forgot it. And just to be able to reconstruct that for memory was a very uh, powerful but grueling uh, task. Beyond
3: what my brother just said, I would add, being that I was charged with the task and privileged with the task. I'm not just remembering, but preparing the talks for publication, many of them the Rebbe himself edited. And we also were able to ask any question we wanted to clarify points. So to me that was maybe the most challenging of all because it's hard enough to put something down in writing if you have a written tr- to write something. It's even harder to put something down in writing that someone else said. And even harder a Rebbe, let alone, and then you have to submit it to him and he's gonna, he knows what he said. <laughs> and, and you may not know what he said. So it was always, I remember, that, always heart palpitations that knowing that this document that you're submitting to the Rebbe, he's going to look at. And I have to add something people are not so aware of. He was a brutal editor, with emphasis on the word brutal, <laughs> which meant the Rebbe did not, in a beautiful, loving way, and I only saw it as education, but the Rebbe did not mince words. Because this was the Rebbe's precision, like a scalpel of a surgeon, every word. And the Rebbe had a favorite expression, which was called mavil. Mavil means shocking in Hebrew. And he would use it quite liberally, uh, which means if anything, some discrepant idea, and remember the Rebbe's standard not our stanzas, things that you and I would read to say, hey, it sounds beautiful. The Rebbe would notice a discrepancy, something, a Talmud that contradicts it. We missed a footnote, and we got a mavil. And a mavil sometimes came underlined, once, <laughs> twice, three, four times. It doesn't stop there. The Rebbe had a way with it, and sometimes he would add an exclamation point, and a question mark. And we <laughs> even merited to a mavil, a shocking, with four underlines, four question marks, and five exclamation points. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I did not break the record. There were both better other writers that got more than I did. But, um, but it was an inside type of joke. But I must say, I would not be the man I am today, and I would not have that type of focus on precision, on words, choosing a word, if I, the Rebbe had not done that. He expected very high standards. That was the most challenging. The second thing I'll just mention was, th- th- my brother alluded to it, but I'll just elaborate. Let me just just point it out. I think it's vital. The Rebbe's pace of speaking was every hour of talk on recording yielded 20 pages, double spaced, eight and a half by 11 pages. So, five hours of talks is 100 pages. So, an average Fabrangan could be four hours, five hours. Then, when Simchas Torah was on a Friday, there was a Fabringen Thursday night, a Fabringen Friday night, a Shabbos early afternoon, and a Fabringen Shabbos late afternoon. And remember, it's Simchas Torah. So there's a lot of And not, not by us, but by everyone around us, and a lot of dancing. It's beautiful, but it's not conducive to memory. And uh, and then the first time at Soy Shab a Saturday night, we had to reconstruct four fabrangians, which were sometimes over 20 hours. And it wasn't easy. We sometimes didn't even remember which fabrangian something was said. We knew it was said, but was it before the Hakafez or after the <laughs> You know. And the challenge of trying to, to almost verbatim recreate so many pages was The task of uh, mental exertion, it's impossible to really describe. The floor is yours. Be that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I tried to be professional about it. So I went to the library and I took out books on simultaneous translation. The only people who do simultaneous translation are the UN and the United Nations. And the advice in the book was really very practical. Number one, look over the notes of the speech carefully. (laughs) The Rebbe didn't give us any notes. He didn't speak from notes. The second advice was even better. Don't hesitate to use the red button. (laughs) The translator at the UN has a button on his podium. And if the speaker is going a little too fast, you press the button and it lights up a little light on the speaker's podium, telling him to slow down. <laughs> no, that was not going to work at a in either. And the whole, the whole book was just totally useless because it, nobody else does this. It's, it's unheard of. So you just had to wing it. And the really interesting thing, if you want to know, When you're doing a simultaneous translation, you can't be thinking. It just has to come in one ear and out the mouth. (laughs) So after finishing the translation, they asked me to do a summary. I didn't remember. I don't know what that talk was about. Because if you stop to think, you fall behind and the whole thing becomes clumsy and awkward and so on. The one thing that was really important, I think, to the Rebbe, although he never said it, he wanted to fabring the way he always fabrings. Just because the camera was there, he wasn't going to change the fabring. So the one thing he needed to know is that he didn't have to be careful in his expressions. Like, for example, the Rebbe would say an obvious point, a very, a very obvious thought. And he would say, even a non-Jew understands this. In Yiddish, it doesn't sound so bad. (laughs) (laughs) If you said it in English, it would be quite offensive. So even without thinking, you had to be alert to the differences and the nuances between the Yiddish and the the English. So when the Rebbe says, even a non-Jew understands this, you had to quickly transpose it a little bit and say, you don't have to be Jewish to appreciate this idea. (laughs) <laughs> that was the real challenge
1: Again, going the other direction What what would you say is the The, the Rebbe added After the six other Rebbes of Chabad What is it that he that his Torah added That was very specific to him?
2: This is probably the most important Um thought of the of the entire of the entire generation whatever generation means the rebbe announced right at the beginning of his leadership that we are the seventh generation there were six rebbes before this is the seventh generation and the seventh is special how special like the difference between the six days of the week and the seventh day which is shabbos Quite a radical difference. So being the seventh generation, we are the sabbatical generation, right? The Shabbos generation. And that changes everything radically. For example, an hour before Shabbos, if you're busy making a kugel, grating it, baking it, whatever it is, you're doing a great mitzvah. I mean kugel. Potato kugel. Uh (laughs) But then, when Shabbos begins, that same mitzvah now becomes a sin. If you're grating or cooking or baking a minute after sunset, so it's a radical change. It's a mitzvah the minute before and a minute later, it's a sin. What the Rebbe was telling us is that six days of the week is when we're supposed to improve ourselves, improve the world, make existence easier. Something is broken, fix it. Something is missing, go buy it. Deliver it, whatever it is. Make the world better. But on Shabbos, we're not allowed to make the world better. On Shabbos, we focus completely on the creator, not the creation. Shabbos La Hashem. The day is dedicated to the creator, not to the creation. Not even to the creator's desires concerning creation. So what does that mean in practical terms for us today? It's not about us anymore. It's not about being a tzaddik, it's not about being religious, it's not about being frum, it's not about getting to heaven, it's not about us. That's the six days of the week. We did that, we perfected ourselves. The six generations before the Rebbe created unbelievably awesome human beings, deeply committed to godliness, internally inspired, and ready to give up everything for Yiddishkeit. As we saw in the generation just before the Rebbe, Hasidim putting their lives on the line to fight communism, successfully. But the Rebbe said, okay, that was wonderful, that was great, but now it's Shabbos. Now we have to focus on God wants a dwelling place in the lower world, that's how we began. That's why he created the world. That was the beginning of everything. Well, now we got to bring it to a close. Now the world has to become the dwelling place for him. So it's not about you anymore. So the Rebbe says, buy a one-way ticket, the young couple. Buy a one-way ticket to a Jewish community. You're going there, and you're going to do. Um, do Do what? You'll see. You'll get there, you'll look around, you'll see. But how am I supposed to do that? I'm not trained, I'm not, I'm not qualified, I don't, whatever, do your best. With whom? Well, whoever's there. It was like there was no limits. Once the focus is on God, there's no limit. If God needs something done and you say, yeah, but I'm not so good at it, we know what God said to Moshe. It's not your talent that's gonna make it happen. It has to happen. So one of the early shluchim, before he left on his shlichos, said to Rabbi Hadakov, the Rebbe's personal secretary, he said, I'm willing to go on shlichos, but I'm not good at anything. Ich ken garnished. And Rabbi Kharikov, in typical characteristic fashion, said, if you're not good at anything, then you will be good at everything. If you don't specialize, <laughs> if you don't have one limited talent, then you'll do whatever you need to do. And that is an amazing thing, that the shluchim do whatever needs to be done. You need to start a day school, you start a day school. Amami and me, you do that. Tsunami, you're the first one on the scene. (laughs) The shliach shows up with a helicopter. FEMA is still trying to figure out what to do. (laughs) And the shliach is already there with a helicopter. So where'd you get a helicopter? You rent one. (laughs) Is this what you were taught in yeshiva? (laughs) No, in yeshiva you were taught that this is the seventh generation and whatever God needs done has to get done. The issue is his will, not your ability, your talent, your goodness, your holiness, your genius. It's none of that. It's Shabbos. And on Shabbos, by the way, you're not allowed to take the bones out of the fish. During the weekday, you're gonna eat fish, take the bones out, and then eat Gesundheit. But on Shabbos, you're not allowed to take the bones out of the fish which is why we eat gefilte fish, in case you were wondering. What do you do on Shabbos when there's bones in the fish? You eat the meat and you let the bones fall aside. In the past, you had to first be kosher and you had to get rid of all the bones in your your behavior. Then you could do mitzvahs. First stop sinning, then you can do mitzvahs. The Debbe comes and says, stop a guy in the street, ask him to put on Tvillin. Uh, shouldn't he wash the first? Don't ask him about the Nagelvasar, just talk about the Tvillin. Well, shouldn't we ask him whether he believes in God? No, don't get into any conversation, just put on the tfilin. Uh What if he has tattoos all over the arm? <laughs> stop with your problems. A mitzvah can be done, You're ready to do it. You don't have any prerequisites anymore. So what do you do? You say, excuse me, you're Jewish? Good, that's all I need to know. Now, turn up your sleeve and let's put on the toilet. We don't have to get rid of the bones before we can do a mitzvah. It's Shabbos. On Shabbos, if you do the mitzvah, the bones will fall aside. I think that is the biggest revolutionary concept. Not only in Judaism, but even in Chabad. Equal time? (laughs) 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 Only if it's a rebuttal. (laughs) I would respond as
3: follows. Seventh, of course, seventh generation in Kabbalah, the talks about Malchus as being the seventh. And um, one of the unique qualities of Malchus is its ability to, uh, in a way, sum up and distill the entire comprehensive infra- infrastructure and provide it as a blueprint for life. What the Rebbe did, especially when you uh, learn the teachings of Hasidus of the previous generations, and for that matter, all the generations, back to Moses, back to the beginning of time, you see that's what he did, what was most unique. In all his talks, you saw this feature of taking all sections in, of the entire spectrum of Torah, showing its um, integrated nature, how it's all part of one theme, and always concluding with a call to action. This was the hallmark of every talk of the rebbe's. So you literally have what Torah calls pardes, pshat, remez, saw the four different ways of interpreting Torah. So there were scholars who mastered the literal interpretation, the allegorical, the homiletic, the talmudic, the esoteric, and the Rebbe was always combined and always a call to action. That's malchus which of course is consistent, not a rebuttal, of what Rabbi Friedman said, in the sense of like the end of a process. like the Rebbe's words in his opening discourse, 1951, Yud Shvat, when the Rebbe assumed officially leadership, that we are the last generation, the seventh generation, and as Moses built a temple, and he was the seventh from Abraham, we will finish the process of thousands of years of history, seven generations of Chabad, to culmination both in action and the teachings. So this was, I believe, wherever you look in the Rebbe's, both his campaigns and his teachings, always you saw that integrative ability and that call to action that each one of us, whoever we are, can act on it.
0: I'll save the rest of my time for another question. In addition to what uh, my esteemed brother and uh, esteemed Rabbi Friedman shared, there's a lot to say, I'll just uh, literally say one point from probably uh, many, many points that can be made about this. And that is, it's interesting to note, and the truth is, it's I think also sad, uh, for most Jews and non-Jews, the Lubavitcher Rebbe is known most as a social activist, as an undisputed great leader. Even people who over the years had disagreements with Chabad or have some issues with Chabad for whatever reason, right or wrong, couldn't argue and can't argue, especially today, 25 years later, that the Rebbe was an extraordinary visionary, a lover of his people, a great activist, an innovator, used technology, brought people together, sent shluchim to the whole world. All, of course, 100% true. What most people don't know is that the Rebbe naturally was not any of this. He wrote, writes in himself that he did not have a skill for this, which is fascinating. Who was really the Rebbe? The Rebbe really naturally, if you looked at him over the years, especially in his youth, he was really a person who saw himself as sitting his own life in an isolated room studying Torah. Uh, The Rebbe's scholarship in Yiddishkeit and Torah is something that sadly most Jews don't even know about. Even in Chabad it's not so known. The Rebbe's scholarship and achievement in understanding Torah and teaching Torah in a unique and unprecedented way, still is one of the best kept secrets of Chabad. <laughs> and one of the best kept secrets of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And uh, just to give one simple example would be would be this. The Rebbe had an unbelievable mind and he knew by heart uh, all of the Talmud and all of the writings of halacha, Jewish law, but also what very few people know, all the writings of Jewish philosophy, and even more, all the writings of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, from books that nobody even ever heard of, especially those days when it was not uh, recorded and organized like we have today on computer, and Bar-Ilan, and all these types of things. And he would reference it out of the blue. Nobody even knew, sometimes the Rebbe would say things, nobody even knew the source, and yet, There are people who have memories like that, but the Rebbe was also an unbelievably organized and systemized thinker. So all the details were always part of a cohesive, integrated whole. And not just mysticism and spirituality, but like my brother said, all streams of Torah, Jewish law, Jewish psychology, Jewish philosophy, halacha, Jewish spirituality, Jewish history—the nitty-gritty details of Judaism that people look at strange, strange, archaic laws—and every detail, it was literally like the genome in the DNA that has a that has a, the instructions for the entire organism with fifty trillion cells. That's how the Rebbe was. With every detail, he saw the whole. Uh, whole picture. Uh, another interesting thing is that there were just basically two streams of Talmudic sages. There were the Talmudic sages who were people who zoomed in and people who zoomed out. Those who focused on the tree and those who focused on the forests. Focusing on the trees is what they do today in most Yeshivas. I don't know if you're familiar with the yeshiva world, but boys could sit a whole year and learn seven pages in Talmud a whole year, you know that? And they're learning 12 hours a day. Some of them know nothing, some of them know a little bit, and some of them know a lot. But it's very much zooming in. They'll take something, they call it different ways of learning, brisk, other ways, very analytical. They'll take something in Talmud and they'll dissect it, Officially, till the skeleton, till the core, and then you understand it. There were other Talmudists who zoomed out. They, like, they, they, they got crazy with the trees, but they liked talking about the forest, the big picture, general ideas, general principles, and both would make fun of each other throughout history. I don't know in Jewish history, from my knowledge, somebody like the Rebbe, who really, really uh, achieved excellence in both of them with equal Precision and with equal sensitivity and respecting both with the same intensity because they're two different parts of the brain, they're two different personalities, they're opposite personalities. And the Rebbe could zoom out, and that's why a lot of people appreciated him from that perspective. But the Rebbe can equally zoom in, and a lot of people couldn't then tune into him because it was very different. He would get so granular. And yet, in his mind, they were both the same because he always introduced a third component. And the third component, in, in Hasidic Chabad language, there's something called God's imminence, something called God's transcendence. Mamale is God's imminence, that's God zooming in, the trees. There's God's transcendence, they call it soiviv. It's called the forest. And then the Rebbe said, but what about God himself? Is God imminent or is God transcendent? Is God finite or is God infinite? Is God above or is God within? Does God love details or God couldn't care less about the details? And the answer, of course, is that in the essence, infinity and finite become one. And the Rebbe always felt that that's how you have to learn Torah, as that ultimate synthesis of the infinite and the finite in one. And that's why learning his words, if you get them, they are electrifying and always create paradigm shifts that are transformative on every level of the human condition.
1: Going on that extraordinary explanation, if we focus on the Rebbe's work on Rashi, on the great commentary Rashi from the uh, 1100s, 11th century, and dying in the early 1100s, um, it, what would you say is is a, uh, a one of his great understandings from the deep level of, under, of of his knowledge about how Rashi works that people could take a deeper understanding of Rashi from today's talk, right, well, Rabbi? Jacobson at the end, if we could
0: start, please. It's a a, a very interesting chapter in the Rebbe's life and scholarship. His mother passed away in the year 1964, and he wanted to, it was a way of honoring her that every Shabbos afterwards he would dedicate a very large section of his address to analyze one Rashi in the portion of the week. And the Rebbe did this for the next 65, so 75, 85. He did it basically for the next 25 years. And sometimes he would dedicate more than an hour to the Rashi. Uh, During those years, the Rebbe revealed was, was unique. Most people learn Chumash, and then they learn Rashi, and Rashi is like a very nice, simple commentary on the Chumash. The Rebbe, I guess like an, if I, you could use the word like an ultimate uh, scientist and quantum mechanics physicist basically revealed that Rashi had behind him a whole methodology, a whole formula, how he viewed the Torah and that every line in his commentary was consistent with his methodology. The Rebbe revealed around 50 or 100 formulas and methodology that guided Rashi in his commentary to the point that the Rebbe taught that even the headline, (laughs) Rashi always starts with a headline quoting a few words from the verse and then he gives an interpretation. Nobody even noticed it. It's just a word from the verse. The Rebbe said, no, look at the headline. If he quoted only two words from the verse, it means that it's those two words that are what are inviting his commentary. The Rebbe had an idea that Rashi most times never quotes names, you know, he only says the rabbi's taught. When he quotes a name, it's because there's something about the personality or history of this person that is adding to the interpretation. So there are literally, uh, uh, there's a book called The Principles, The Methods of Rashi, a man named Rabbi Blau authored it. I think he has there two or 300 principles that Re- the Rebbe revealed in, uh, in Rashi's uh, commentary. That's just a few examples.
3: Just to add another uh, element to this, uh, I always thought why did the Rebbe honor his mother this way? It was because the Rebbe always emphasized that Rashi was written for ben Benchomosh lemikra for a child of five years old that just begins to study. And this is just a speculation. What better way to honor his mother, but most likely she's the one that first learned Rashi with him, as he was five years old. And uh, we would always say it was an inside type of uh, understanding, the Rebbe's understanding of Rashi of a five-year-old was when the Rebbe was five years old. I don't know about other (laughs) five-year-olds, but at least it's a standard to live up to. What was most fascinating was the fact that the simplicity, pshat. Pshat means not any of the allegorical hidden messages, and we know the Torah is filled with layers upon layers, the simple interpretation of a verse. Just one example. When did the sin of tree of knowledge happen? So anyone familiar with the Talmud says it happened on Friday. Friday was the day Adam and Eve were created. The Talmud says first hour this happened, the second hour that happened, the third hour this happened. It's miraculous basically. And the sixth hour, sometime Friday early afternoon, they ate from the tree. So that's the Talmudic interpretation. I remember 1990, the Shabbos Barashas, the Rebbe speaking on the Rashi of that chapter, and said that according to Pshat, without looking at the Talmud, without looking at all the rabbinic interpretations, it appears that the, uh, the eating of the tree of knowledge was after, after Shabbos. It may have been on Sunday or Monday. So it's not a contradiction because there are different ways to interpret. But there was a certain simplicity that any child could understand. And at the same time, the Rebbe would always conclude his talks on Rashi that there's profound mystical and profound personal lessons. I use, use this because this is a model of education. If you can speak in a language that a five-year-old can understand and the greatest scholar in Torah can understand, you're combining a, a unique combination that's very rare Teachers that teach five-year-olds usually cannot teach 15-year-olds. Definitely not scholars in different schools of thought. The Rebbe mastered that ability of taking a Rashi. Moda'ani, the Rebbe, one of the classic talks. Moda'ani, we say with children, thank you, God, for returning my soul. And the Rebbe turned it into a literal interpretation that every child can understand. And the greatest scholars and greatest mystics can also understand. All understood in the same words the same interpretations.
2: In yeshiva in Montreal, there was a student who was a very, uh, a very intelligent, intellectual, serious student. He was learning a piece of Gemara. He read the text of the Gemara and he understood what the Gemara was saying. Then he read Rashi's commentary and Rashi had a completely different understanding of that of that uh, text, and he decided he wants to understand how did Rashi come to that conclusion when the simple, obvious meaning was the one that he himself had come to. So he tried to put himself into Rashi's mind, into his shoes, to see what Rashi saw that led him to that other conclusion. He dedicated himself to this project for almost 10 days, and he ended up in the hospital. It just just blew his fuses. What the Rebbe did with Rashi is not only to get into Rashi's mind and to see what Rashi was seeing, (laughs) I think he saw things that Rashi himself didn't see that what Rashi was saying was so perfectly correct from every angle that Rashi didn't, probably didn't even think about. He just saw it instinctively, clearly, because he had eyes for Torah, for truth, for godliness. So that, you know, you have to wonder, that Rebbe explains a Rashi so magnificently, you're thinking, did Rashi actually go through all this? Did he actually realize how significant his own words were? Particularly like the teacher of a five-year-old? Did he go through all that? Or was that just instinctive because he was a Torah scholar? He saw Torah with his eyes. He didn't have to go through the whole process. So the fact that, that the Rebbe could actually introduce us to Rashi's The mind of Rashi. Or was it advertisement years ago? The mind of Minolta, remember such a thing? In the mind of Minolta. (laughs) To get into Rashi's mind and see what he sees, without blowing a fuse, (laughs) and then explain it so that everybody else can appreciate it. I wonder, what does Rashi think about all this? (laughs) And how grateful is he to the Rebbe, for bringing him alive after all these years. That's really mind-blowing. What
1: would would you say is the point of difference that the Rebbe would say that makes Chabad Hasidus different from other forms of Hasidus? From the outside, a lot of people don't see certain types of differences. And uh, from the inside, there's certainly extraordinary differences. So if we could please help explain that. Ray
2: Freeman, if we could start with you. Each generation or a number of generations of Chabad thinking uh, emphasize different uh, aspects or dimensions of Judaism, of being a Jew. What is a Jew? Who is a Jew? And so on. If we had to pick one thing that the Rebbe introduced, it was the idea that none of us are private citizens, and all of us are responsible for everything. That's, that is a radical concept that did not exist in the past. The idea of davening six hours in the morning, sitting under the, ta- under the talus, completely immersed meditating on, on what Judaism demands, what God demands of us, trying to mold yourself into a more godly person. That was, that was the Hasidic style, particularly in Chabad, because Chabad insisted that your inspiration should come from within and not from without. So miracles are inspiring, but that inspiration doesn't last. Because it doesn't change you. Seeing a Rebbe be inspired is inspiring, but it's imported. It's borrowed inspiration. It's not the real thing. The Chabad Choset had to find his inspiration internally, and that comes from learning. From understanding godliness. If you look in Tanya, you immediately see this is a different way So that was the Chabad. Well, what the Rebbe added was, instead of sitting under the talis for six hours to try to generate a deeper appreciation for your fellow Jew and to increase your avas yisroel, the Rebbe says, why not do it in actual practice? Here's a ticket. Go to a town that nobody wants you. (laughs) Set up a center and do whatever you can just because There are Jews there and you want to help a fellow Jew. Then we'll know whether your avasis role is increasing or decreasing. So the Rebbe turned it all into practice. Go out in the street and stop a guy and ask him to put on film. Stop a woman and give her Shabbos candles. Put your beliefs, your your convictions, your commitment, put it to action involving others. So somebody wrote a book called the Rebbe Turn Judaism outward. In other words, it's not about you, it's about what your service is. You serve your people, you serve God, that's what it's all about. So he turned us from private citizens into um, masters of the universe. Fix the world, change the world with what you have, with what you've learned, with what you've gained. If you know an Aleph, go teach Aleph. If you know a Beis, go teach Beis. But never center on yourself. And the Rebbe modeled it perfectly. It was never about him. I mean, you probably you've seen the clip. Some guy comes to the Rebbe for dollars and he says, Rebbe, the last time I was here was 19 years ago. I don't know if you remember. And the Rebbe said, yes, and I asked you then to do something for your community. And the guy says, Rebbe, you're amazing. So the Rebbe says, what good does your community gain by my being amazing? Did you do something for your community? So it was never about himself. It was always about concern for others.
3: I'll just add one thing which I think is vital um, about Chabad Hasidus, comparing it to other schools of Hasidic thought. I'll leave you uh, 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <That's> <laughs> all the privilege.
3: <laughs> He's the master of 10 seconds. Um, and that is, uh, and this is not meant to be taken any negative way. They once put uh, 10 blind people into a, a cage with an elephant and they, they let them figure out what is this uh, creature inside this cage. So they were blind. So each one touched the elephant in a different place. This one said the elephant is like a tree trunk because he touched the legs of the... Another one said the elephant is like a uh, water hose. because so he touched its trunk. The other one said it's like big leaves on a tree, the, the ears. These were all true. Then a sci- a seeing person came and said it's an elephant. One of the things on a personal note, and I've heard this from many as well, when you learn Chabad this, um, uh, the Alter Reb, the founder of Chabad Chassidus, and then developed by the Rebbe's after him, you see the whole picture. And it actually puts into context not only other schools of Chassidus, but also other schools outside of Chassidus. Talmud and all the branches of Judaism. And it's not taking away, it's just some talk about the big picture. My brother talked about it before a bit. And that big picture informs the details. So, you read sometimes something not a ch- Chabad Chesedis, very powerful thought. And then you say, ah, that's a piece of the big puzzle. And therefore, there's room really to study it all because it's all part of Torah. But I think that's a very valuable contribution of Chabad Chesedis. And the Rebbe, of course, in Chabad Chesedis itself, mastered and summed it all up and distilled it all into that type of large blueprint, briefly stated. Take it away, brother.
0: <laughs> Out of hundreds of different answers to be given, the 10 second, uh, one one possible 10 second answer is that uh, in many branch, all the branches of Hasidus come from the Baal Shem They're filled with very powerful gems of spirituality, of wisdom, of inspiration, of love, of... Uh, of wisdom, of sensitivity, of empathy. If you know how to read it, one of the unique elements of Chabad Hasidus is that it focused a lot on the part of the human condition that is completely not interested, which means the part that is brute, the traumas, the insecurities, the beast, the challenges, the promiscuity, the immorality. And the Alter Rebbe taught that real Yiddishkeit is not about escaping to a place of denial and heaven, but the real ability to be able to see who you really, really are and integrate heaven and earth within your own life.
1: I want to thank these rabbanim tremendously for their incredible candor and uh, ability to give short answers. Thank you guys very much.
2: Please visit myjli.com
0: to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and torahcafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.